Welcome to Village Church again. Uh, I'm a guest speaker, and I think um, most of you maybe don't know uh, who I am and why I'm here. So Pastor Michael has just uh, entrusted me to uh, something he has no control over. Too bad for him. Um, I'm Steve Torgerson, and your church has been part of our uh, financial support team, prayer team for a long time. I'm pretty sure it's about three decades, and uh, so... Uh, we have been serving in East Asia among the Chinese people, and I want to talk to you about that a little bit this morning. Can I first introduce my wife, Marilee? She's right here. <clears throat> you can tell by the color of our hair that we've um, been doing things for quite a while uh, and other things uh, about us that dates us. Um, thank you for the chance to come and speak to you this morning. And uh, this church has been a very faithful support team for a long time. It was Pastor Jim Mooberry, if some of you older people remember him, when he was the senior pastor here. And he came over to China, to Hong Kong and to China. That's when I first met him, and, and uh, he said, boy, I'd like to introduce you to our church back in uh, Bartlett. And so that's how that uh, relationship began. Uh, we have uh, lived in a different part of the world for a long, long time. And 37 years is how long we've been living overseas, more than half of our lives. And when you find yourself uh, the only white person in a sea of Chinese, thousands, and, and you kind of look at yourself and look around, uh, you know that you're different. Or when meal after meal that you've eaten, and I've had many of these, when you don't recognize things that are before you, but you choose to eat them anyway with a thankful heart, uh, that changes you too. I think it has something to do with hair color. I've eaten a lot of rice, and my hair never did turn black, um, which is typical of Chinese people. You know, that's uh, black hair is, when you don't have it, I guess is what I'm saying, you do stand out. Changes thinking differently, noticing you're different, um, being in a place where you're not the same as others can be a good thing. It can be a very good thing. And it can have an effect on you if you stop and listen, pray, and ask God what's going on. So this morning I want to talk to you about things, the ways that I've changed. So this is a little bit of a um, review, summary, a consolidation of what's happened with our life personally in some ways and how has it affected the way, I'm just speaking about me, the way I think, the way I look at things, uh, how I view the world. And so I have an agenda with that. It's not just to tell you stories and it's not just to um, waste your time that, oh, you're going to listen to this guy talk about his personal life. I'd like you to go away today uh, thinking of one area in your life so I'm going to mention several things, but I just want you to try to go home with one. One area in your life that you think maybe after listening to me and the stories about people that I've personally met and know and are my friends, many of them, um, what area might God be putting his finger on in your life to say, here's an area I want you to stop, to rethink to change, to quit, to have a different perspective. Now, I might touch on a few things. You might say, oh, maybe I better rethink about that, or maybe I better think about that too. Just do one. One's enough, and do one at a time. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Now, is this going to be too much to ask of you? Mm-hmm, I think so. Um, but uh, we need to learn to trust the tour guide, 
And we're all on a tour in a sense, or a journey, a journey in life. Mine has been very different than yours, I'm sure. But you're on one too. And so what is the tour guide? What is God saying to you? And how does he want you to start looking at things differently? Take a different look out a different window, maybe. And stop and say, what are you saying to me? Now, I think this is going to be two things for you. It's going to be amazing and disturbing. Pretty presumptuous of me to think that you're going to be amazed about what I say. Uh, But I think it's going to be encouraging, at least the amazing part. And the uh, disturbing part is I hope it's not comfortable and that it makes you just stop and think. Uh, Maybe I should take another retake on that. So we want to look at um, a text this morning, a Bible text. Now, when I talk about trying to make changes and maybe thinking differently, uh, we can get discouraged about that, but God always gives us this fascinating tool that we can use all the time, and it's always available, and it's His grace. And we think of grace as God's riches at Christ's expense all the time, but there's another aspect of grace, and that is power and strength. And grace is His power to enable us to change and to become different. So um, I want to look at a text this morning. It's from 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, first few verses. And I like to do this in good Chinese fashion. And the way we do this in a Chinese church, if this was a Chinese church, uh, then we would stand up to read Scripture. And so we're going to have this... um, uh, we're going to have this scripture on the screen for you, and let's stand up, and then let this is the ESV, and let's read it together, and there's something beautiful about hearing each other's voices reading God's word together, so let's do this. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And we'll keep going. There we go. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we do not lose heart. Self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, there's a theme phrase in this journey, and we've read it a couple of times, and it is this uh, word, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Can you say it with me? Do not lose heart. Well, uh, that doesn't sound motivating, does it? Sounds like you're going to head into trouble, head into some difficulty. And if you were, a t- if you were trying to promote a tour, because I did say we're on a journey... 
and the uh, promotional tag for the journey was do not lose heart, uh, would you be eager to sign up for that journey? Maybe not. And you'd say, wait a second, I'm not that stupid. Uh, I think I really need to recalibrate. <clears throat> so to be honest, if you are a Christ follower, have you ever on occasion run into discouragement, frustration, confusion? You're not sure what in the world is God doing and what's going on? So that's common for all of us. And so we have that from time to time. Um, why? Uh, I get into that situation too. And when I think about it, I discover, okay, wait a second. I think I've been leaning too hard into my default desires. My default desires. Okay, so what are those? I don't know if you have any of these. But I like to lean toward comfort, convenience, better, more, easier, safety, Nice and generous margins, low or no risk, guaranteed outcomes in my favor. Avoiding threat, nothing negative, no losses. Winning, pleasure, excess. Anybody identify with uh, those? All sound good, don't they? We kind of like that. I don't think there's anything sinful necessarily in any of those either. And yet we seem to think that we deserve them, we're drawn to them. Uh, but I've been changing. And the tour guide has been waking me up to see, you know, I think you can look through life through a different lens, Steve, and it's a better one. So I wonder what kind of change God might be having in store for you, and when, what would the process be? Well, we're going to start now with verse 1, and it says this, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, and it's this amazing, phenomenal ministry of a message about transformed lives. And if so, we don't lose heart. But if it's such a wonderful message, why is Paul saying, do not lose heart when you have this good message? So maybe things weren't going so well with Paul. So the next verse, too, gets us into the story a little bit. Um, I look at this, and I think it says um, verse 2. So uh, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. So apparently some people do present the gospel and go about their ministry in disgraceful and underhanded ways. Think about that. Uh, we don't use cunning or we don't tamper with God's word. We manipulate it, use it to get our agenda or to convince us that what we want to do is really what God wants us to do, and so we tamper with God's word. But then he says, it's with the open statement of the truth, and we commend ourselves. He says, look at us. We're not like people who manipulate the gospel message, but examine our lives. We want to be transparent before you. People of integrity, and so pay attention to our lives. Maybe our lives will show you that we're truthful, honest, sincere, and we don't manipulate, and we don't tamper, and we're not disgraceful or underhanded. So do, are there people that are in some kind of church work that do those kinds of things? Well, our team, uh, the ministry I'm a part of is called SALT, Systematic Asian Leadership Training. And we've been uh, doing pastoral leadership training for a long time, and uh, we spent three years of research looking into are there, what are the groups in the country we served in uh, that are, uh, you might call them cults or they're deceitful Christian groups or are they Christian at all? They sure look like it. And one of the groups that we spent a lot, we found 19 different cults in that country. Not anything that you've ever heard of. Some of them are just goofy and weird and corny and some of them are uh, intentional 
nasty, calculating, uh, awful, and influential. And one of them was called Eastern Lightning. Uh, Eastern Lightning decided to change its name a few years ago, and they said, you know, that's, we can come up with a better one. So they're called the Almighty God Church, and that sounds good, right? We believe that. God is almighty. So what is, what is Eastern Lightning? Eastern Lightning taught that God is egalitarian. He's fair. He's, he's equal, okay? And so God sent his son Jesus uh, some time ago, and he, and he came to the earth. But God, Jesus, is going to come back a second time like lightning from the east. That's from Matthew 24. And so where is the east if Jesus is going to come like lightning from the east? Well, that's got to be China. And if God's egalitarian, if Jesus came the first time as a man, he's going to come the second time as a woman, just to be fair. And sure enough, Lady Jesus has come back. And she is in China, and she lives in Henan province, and uh, their eastern lightning worships Lady Jesus, and they have songs to her. And So is that just corny and silly? Uh, no, not really, because they're very involved. We, we, spent some, we found out that they have a manual uh, on how to infiltrate a good church. Now, they liked to focus their attention on what we call house churches, and these are usually the smaller uh, in the past, they were always in the countryside. Now they're all over the place. Um, because house churches don't always have pastors or good leadership or good, well-trained leaders. And so they were easy prey. And so they would use blackmail. They would use bribery. They would use threats. Uh, on one occasion, we've, we've had people who we know are Christian evangelists be kidnapped by Eastern Lightning and held as prisoners. Uh, another occasion, there was a woman who was a, just a lovely evangelist, elderly lady. She was in a village, and she gets a phone call, and someone from another village says, you've got to come to our village tonight. Uh, the people are all ready to receive the gospel. They need someone to preach it, and you're a good preacher. Can you come and share the gospel? The people are ready to come to Christ. And she said, I, I, no, it's too late. I'll come tomorrow. It'll be fine tomorrow. And they said, no, no, you've got to come tonight. This is urgent. This is critical. They're ready, and they're all gathered. They're waiting for you. And so reluctantly, she says, okay, all right, I'm coming tonight. So she gets on her bicycle, and she's going down this gravel road to the village, which is a little ways away, and she just thought, okay, I'm just going to serve God and, uh, and be faithful to him. But hiding in the ditch were two men who had these metal pole posts, and they were waiting for her to come by, and they jumped out, smashed her, and beat her to a pulp. Thought they had successfully killed her. She did survive, and their whole point was they needed to get rid of her because she was causing all the Christians in the area to not follow them, and she was the roadblock. They would do things like that. Eastern Lightning was mean, nasty, deadly, and we took it seriously. They even sometimes came into some of our training events to disrupt them. Well, it's hard sometimes to identify how people distort the Word of God, and, and, and then you wonder, why are they doing that? Or, and then I started thinking, well, I wonder in what ways I might distort God's Word by my cultural preferences, by my American viewpoint or my American glasses. And are there things that I say about what is true or the Bible or the, or the church that really are, it's just American, and it's not necessarily biblical. And so it's hard to take those glasses off. We call that ethnocentrism. It's our own preference of how we like things. And so I began to wonder, okay, God, show me. How do I have trouble or not see 
where I'm at fault. So let me give you a few stories that helped change my way of thinking. Uh, there was a group of churches in an area that we worked with, and uh, there might have been several hundred of them, and somebody, one of the guys, one of the brothers, had uh, some property up in some high hills, sort of like mountains, and he said, why don't I dedicate this to the church? What if we have a little, build a building there and kind of a chapel, and we could go up into the mountains, and we could have a prayer time and, and a little retreat center, and so the... Uh, church family thought, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So they all worked together, and they built a chapel. And then they said, we need to have a place where we can eat. And so they built a kitchen and a dining facility kind of an area. And then the question was, oh, maybe we should make it, extend it. We should have some kind of housing here for people so that people can stay. We could have a week-long retreat kind of thing. So it slowly began to expand, and the facility became more and more useful for more purposes. And somebody ratted on them and told the police about it and said, hey, this, these church people are building a building up on that uh, hill up there in the woods. You can't see it, but if you go up there, you're going to find it. And it's probably an illegal structure, and they're probably not obeying the law. And sure enough, the police go up there. They find it. There it is. Uh, it's all like it was said. And so they come back down. They get their supplies and things, and they come back up there with dynamite and bulldozers and exploded, blew the whole thing up, knocked it all down, and destroyed it. If you were the landowner, or it was your church that did that, how would you respond? And what would you do? Could you forgive? Would you think, I wonder if this was a lesson we're supposed to learn from God? Um, Max is one of our co-workers. That's not his real name, but we called him Max. Um, uh, Eventually, Max was able to get a computer. When we first met Max, of course, he couldn't type Uh, He could read, of course, but uh, then he got a a computer, and uh, he learned to play guitar, and uh, Max started accumulating worship songs uh, on his computer, and so he kind of had a a lot of um, PowerPoint slides where he could put up the words like we were doing this morning. And uh, a youth group was having a gathering in that area, and they knew Max had all of these... um, uh, slides with the uh, words on songs to sing, and they said, "Hey, could we borrow your computer? Would you? We were having a bunch of young people over here. Would you bring it over so we could project it up on a screen and just enhance our worship time?" He says, "Sure, okay, no problem." And so Max goes over there and drops off his computer and sets it all up. And just soon after that, there's a police raid, and they uh, stopped it all and took the computer, took it down to the police station. One of the policemen really liked that computer because it was kind of a nice one, and so he decided to keep it. And Max is without one. And he couldn't say, hey, that's mine, that's my property. And of course, he couldn't afford to buy a new one, and so he's without. How do you process that? And is that okay? Is that bad for the church? Is the church suffering? Well, yeah, it is, but is it going to be a real negative issue for the church or not? Is that part of a lesson to learn? Joshua is another one of our uh, co-workers, um, really an amazing evangelist and church planter. He planted over 20 churches in one major city, or he has. Uh, Joshua is just a really good preacher and evangelist, and so he would meet with some of the other pastors in the area there's about uh, four or five of them. About once a month, they'd get together just to pray for each other, encourage each other, kind of talk about what are you preaching about this coming month, and just, just a fellowship kind of a thing. It just so happened that they were meeting that time 
uh, was in late May, and late May was getting to be nervous time, uh, and they were in a city where, where the government authorities were particularly nervous about any groups gathering at that time of the year because they might be planning something subversive uh, that would honor the anniversary of an unhappy event that happened nationally. And so that was just something that you can't do that. They didn't want people to know about it. Uh, and so uh, the police noticed that these guys were gathering. They'd seen Joshua go up into this. And, they, and so he comes out. He's done praying with his friends. And he's going to go to the bus stop. And he's walking to the bus stop. And pretty soon he's surrounded by four or five plainclothes policemen. He goes, okay, this is, this is going to be trouble. And so they take him down to the police station. And they were looking for something to accuse him because it was important that they found something to accuse him. It wasn't a waste of their time. And so there wasn't anything that he had done. And he didn't have any evidence that he was doing anything politically. He had a Bible in his bag and some sermon notes. And they just said, okay, that's, that's bad enough right there. And so they decided they were going to get more information out of him, though. And so they took out the cattle prods. And they were going to start beating him with the cattle prods. If you know what a cattle prod is, it's this metal bar. And it's, it's charged with this super high electrical voltage and it's, it's so shocking, uh, not to pun intended, I guess, uh, if you smacked a bull with it, it would jump and move. Imagine what it does to your body, somebody our size. And so Joshua prayed. He said, God, just somehow stop the electricity from working. I'll take the beating, but stop the, stop the electricity. And God answered that prayer, but they beat him to a pulp. And Joshua knew the law, and he said to them, uh, you can't keep me for more than 24 hours without a charge. And they said, wow, you know the law. Okay. And so after 23 hours, they let him out, and he went home. Two or three days later, a friend of mine saw somebody that sort of looked like Joshua and wasn't quite right. And so he goes, are you Joshua? Is that you? Uh, Joshua's face was all swollen, um, purple, and black, scabs starting to form, uh, just a mess, uh, no broken teeth somehow, and uh, yeah, it's me, it's me. Well, what happened? And so Joshua tells him his story, and at the end Joshua says, but it was a joy for me to have been considered worthy to suffer for my Lord. How would you respond? How would I respond? I wouldn't respond that way, I don't think. I don't think I'm quite that spiritual, and I would have been angry, resentful, hateful, demanding fairness, wishing God's wrath on those guys. God, you could make them have destructive, long-term, super painful cancer for six months. Do it, please. They deserve it. Those are the kinds of things I'd probably think was appropriate prayer. And I would have missed out lessons about unfairness, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, suffering. And what is the point? So is it possible that God uses things like being falsely accused, mistreated, to learn something important? Joshua was not bitter, nor angry. And he forgave them. And he wasn't naive about thinking that they had abused their power and were wrong. 
He knew that was the truth, but he handed them over to God. God is just, and he sees. And so I wondered, how could I do that? Could I respond like Joshua and not lose heart, but trust the tour guide? So I thought, wow, as an American, I just think so differently about what's right, what's fair, how life should be lived. Now, I think real differently about the government and the role of the government. Isn't it supposed to be helpful and supportive? Don't we need that? Isn't that what the point is? What would it be like if we were in a government where uh, there was no benefit for being a Christ follower? You didn't get a tax deduction for your donation. Uh, you know, I mean, really, so what? Most countries, you don't. That's an amazing perk that's undeserved. So do you give anyway? I hope so. Um, what if the government isn't doing what we want for the church? So I've never, ever heard a pastor in China pray for a change in government. Never heard, please God, change our government. Even though I read about that in a lot of uh, mission promotional stuff is how bad the communists are and what a terrible thing that is, but pastors in China don't think so. They don't agree with that. Why? It's because that's the government God has used to cause the church in China to explode in phenomenal ways. So why change it? That's a good thing, I think. Hardship, suffering, opposition, resistance, no respect, misunderstanding, no benefits, no say. You can't vote for somebody to change. It's just one candidate all the time. And yet the church is growing and healthy and obedient and sacrificial and loving. This just was hard for me to get my head around is let that go. All right, let's think about another thing. Let's look to verse 3 and verse 4. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. The God of this world. Do you know who that is? Um, Marilee was leading a Bible study with some ladies, and uh, it was written by an American. I can't remember which person it was, which lady it was. Uh, and she asked the question, so she was writing to an American audience, and she said, do you believe in Satan or in a demonic world? Well, what if I asked you that? We kind of had a vote. Um, would you think that's real? I mean, if you're, if you're Christian, you're supposed to say yes, but I mean, really, do you really think that's real, or do you sort of think, well, maybe it's kind of the Bible exaggerates some things a little bit. Um, so Marilee asked the ladies, now most, almost all of them were Asian, Almost none were Americans. And the Asian ladies who were in the Bible study thought, what a stupid question. Who in the world would ask such a dumb question? It's obviously, of course. Of course there's a demonic world and there is Satan. And they each could talk about very specific incidences that they knew about or were familiar with, either had experienced, but that it was real, of course. Why would an American ask that question? Don't they get it? Well, of course, those are Asian ladies, right? What do they know? And so our world is different, and our world is right. 
sort of. Okay, I'm being a little unfair. Well, in my preparation for ministry, I went to two different seminaries, learned very, very little about Satan and the demonic world. Of course, I wasn't thinking I needed to learn about that, but really, why not? Um, I knew the Bible said there was a devil, but I really didn't understand too much about that. When we first moved to Hong Kong, um, we lived in an apartment building, and the neighbor across next door to us was a teenage boy, and um, he wanted to practice his English, and that gave me a chance to practice my Chinese, and so uh, we, would, we would chat. And one day he said to me, do you believe in ghosts? I thought about it for a minute. I thought, okay, well, yeah, I believe in one. I was thinking of the Holy Ghost, of course. And so uh, I just thought, it's kind of a funny question. And so why do you? He says, oh, yeah. And really? What, what, what do you know what is about that? And so he starts telling me about some weird things going on in his house, in his apartment. And so being analytical, I just thought, okay, he's just, there's just funny things going on, and there's got to be a rational reason for this. And so I started probing, and, it, and uh, boy, no matter what I tried to turn this into something logical, it wasn't working. And weird things were going on, and I just didn't get it. Now, it wasn't evil and horrible and life-threatening. It was pestering, nuisance, strange things, uh, turning on, uh, sounds. Uh, that wasn't my world. I don't know what there is to that. And so I just didn't get it. A few years later, uh, right, it was a few years later, I was uh, teaching at our seminary in Hong Kong, part-time, and I had the first-year students in one of my classes, and one of them was this young lady, and she was a very promising student, loved the Lord, very eager in her um, studies and work, and I was there for a year, and then I left, and I got involved, we got involved with the church plant, and so I didn't hear too much about her or those students after that, except then when I got a visit from one of some of the students, and they said, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? I said, no, what's going on? And And it turned out that in the second year of her studies at seminary, uh, she started having problems, I guess it'd be the nice way to say it, and then she started doing some things the school didn't approve of. It just seemed out of character for her. She wasn't that kind of a defiant, rebellious person. And the school tried to discipline her to bring her in line. That didn't work. And then they tried to um, send her to a psychiatrist And so through counseling and through drugs, they thought they'd kind of control the situation. That didn't work, and things kept continuing to happen in her behavior. And finally, they kicked her out of school. So, but the story went on, and what was going on while she was still in school, she told some of the students this, uh, that she was hearing this voice. And this voice was very distinct and very clear and telling her, challenging her, and asking her to do things and it would protect her. And they were risky things and things that um, would need protection, obviously. And the voice just bothered her and kept disturbing her. And, uh, and so finally, um, she started to respond to, oh, what was going on here? It turned out that when she was born, the day that she was born, her father's business had a catastrophic failure. And he thought, there's something going on here with the spirits about this because this just isn't right. And so he goes to the temple and he asks the, we would say, the priests or the interpreters of signs, uh, what's going on? 
and what happened here. And their conclusion was this child, this little baby girl that was just born to you is cursed. And the spirits have, are attacking you and your business through her. You need to disassociate yourself from this child so that you can save your business. And so as a reasonable dad, he found a good place for her. It was his brother. So she was then disowned by... So she was first dedicated to, at this temple to the spirits at this temple. And then she was disowned legally from the family and entered the family of her uncle. And then they raised her as their daughter. Okay, no harm done. The really wonderful thing about this is the business had success and was saved. You're not applauding. Okay. Uh, so um, later, this girl grows up, gets involved with some friends. They're Christians. They invite her to the youth group. She gives her life to Christ. She starts growing in her walk with God. She's this uh, wonderful participant and leader in the youth group. She applies to our seminary. She's got a wonderful testimony, clear salvation testimony. She comes into the school and things are fine the first year and the second year, the voice starts to say, he wants her back. And it's the spirit of the temple that she had been dedicated to that has said, that's enough. You're coming back to work for me. And so he began to invite her to do things. And the voice kept getting stronger and stronger. She didn't know how to shut it up and silence it. She didn't know that she had the resources right there through Jesus to do that. And the voice kept getting louder and louder. And one day she was walking on Nathan Road, and Nathan Road in Hong Kong is this super heavy traffic, busy street. It's about four or five lanes wide on each side, nonstop traffic. It's going all the time. And, this, and the voice said, run across the street. I'll protect you. No, I can't do that. I can't do it. It's too dangerous. Come on, run. I'll take you. I'll, I'll, I'll cover you. And finally, in a wild act of just trying to get rid of that voice, she did. She darted across Nathan Road, not at a crosswalk, just the middle of the street, and was harm, unharmed, totally unharmed. She thought that would end the voice because she finally did something, but it only got worse. And kept talking to her and disturbing her and calling her until it destroyed her life. Well, what do you think? Is there a demonic world? Is it real? Does Satan actually have power and influence? Or is all that there is to life is just our organic world? What do you think? How do you understand that? And maybe the thing that you need to go home with today is you need to rethink who your opposition is and where it comes from. So the Bible teaches that we are tempted in three ways. You know those three ways? Ourself, our own wishes and desires, so uh, the flesh and the world, society, we're tempted by other things, attracts, and the devil. And usually as Americans, the last one is just kind of silly. It's Casper the friendly ghost kind of stuff. No, it isn't. And we don't always know which it is, uh, and it's not always the devil. Uh, that's an old comedian of days long ago who talked about that, and that's, that's nonsense. Sometimes it has nothing to do with that. Sometimes it's just our problem and our weakness and our issues, but sometimes it isn't. And so the question might be today, uh, what are you going to go home with? Maybe that's the thought is, 
Maybe there is something else that's disturbing my life and I never thought that it could be demonic. How do we deal with that then? Let's move on to the next one. Verse 4 talks about if our Gospels revealed or I'm sorry, we want to go one, two, three, or five. Let's go to verse five and six. There we are. Um, God is the one who said, let your light shine out of the darkness. And he's shown this in our hearts uh, to give us knowledge of Jesus. Light in the darkness. And sometimes uh, that's okay to be in the darkness when we have the light. We don't go seeking for that. So I want to tell you something about another thing that helped me change and grow in my understanding is I want to talk about an old friend whose light shined in a very, very dark place. Her name is Duo Jia. Uh, You won't remember that. Um, She's my age. I met her when we were in our early 40s. She's got a daughter about the age of my daughter. Um... Dodja grew up in a Christian home. Her grandmother was one of the first Christians in her area. Her grandmother came to know Christ in the age when um, people still had bound feet, if you know what that is. It was China Inland missionaries that uh, led her grandma to Christ. Um, I met her grandmother and watched her hobbling around on her feet and uh, went to their home. And Dorcas's mom is a lovely Christian and Dorcas is her English name. So Dodja, you'll remember Dorcas. Um, I don't like to say that with kids because they think of dork. Uh, but Dorcas means gazelle, so it's a beautiful uh, animal. Uh, Dodja, I'll, I'll say that. That's who she is. Uh, when she was a young girl, um, she didn't know what God, I think she was about 15, didn't know what God wanted to do with her and just began to pray and ask God, how can you use me? I'm just a really plain girl. I'm not particularly smart. I'm not particularly pretty. I'm not particularly skilled in anything, but would you use me? I'm available. How do you want to use me? What a beautiful way to pray for a 15-year-old. And uh, God began to use her in remarkable ways. Now, I'm not going to tell you about those, but I'm going to tell you something else about Dodja. Uh, Later, she met a guy named Mark, and they got married. Mark is a wonderful, godly man, They were very, very poor. They couldn't go on a honeymoon, and their honeymoon was at Mark's home where they were going to live. And the second night of their honeymoon, if we were to call it that, second night of their marriage, is pounding on the door. The police rush in and arrest them both. Haul Mark off to one jail and Dojia off to another. Now, the reason they went after these two is because Dojia had a history of being... uh, delivering Bibles all across the country, especially when Bibles were super illegal. And she was just this amazing woman uh, willing to take high risks and loved God and was obedient to him. All kinds of amazing, miraculous things happened in Dodja's life. And now she's arrested. Just think of that. Second night of her marriage and she's hauled off to prison. And so uh, Mark was in prison locally for about a month and they let him go. He goes back home. But Dojia's experience was totally different and she was transferred to another prison which was for more hardened criminals and then to a a third one which was more hardened criminals and a fourth one which was death row. There she is in death row. Now it's been about four months or so 
and she is mad at God. What is going on? And nobody comes out of here alive. And is this the end? Is this where it's going to stop? And then the Lord seems to speak to her, and she remembers a promise that she had made years before, and suddenly she realizes, no, no, God specifically put me in this place to be his light and to serve him. No one else gets this privilege to be in such an awful place, but I am. And so Doja decided that she was going to serve others, care for others, love others, and to be theirs. And so she began doing that. And the response was mean, spiteful, angry. And uh, she got worse and worse, more putrid and putrid tasks, uh, disgusting, vile tasks. But she decided to keep loving. And then one day, the chief warden calls her to his office, and he has on his table a, a paper bag, and it's her street clothes. And he says, you can take these, change, and you can go home to your husband. She sat there for half a second, and she said, and she jumped up, ran back to her cell, slammed the door shut, and said, I'm not leaving. I'm listening to this story, and I'm thinking, you are an idiot. And... <laughs> What were you thinking? And her response was, God had put me in this horrible, awful place, but I learned that this was a special school for me. And it was the school of learning to love with sacrifice. And I hadn't finished my lessons yet. I hadn't finished learning how to love those who hate me. Well, she couldn't stay there, and she was kicked out, and she went back home. What kind of school does God have you in today? And are you learning the lessons? And he puts us in different classes at different times in our life, uh, but it's for us. He wants to teach us something important. So this morning now, um, my time is up, and it's time to reflect and say, okay, what are... What is one thing you can take home? We can look at these uh, three things to think about here. We can look at um, what is something that maybe you need to give up or to let go of or to stop doing. Does it have to do with your perspective on the church and government and how we view the role and the function of the church? Do you need to loosen up on that and just align it more with the Bible? Uh, are you just too naive about the demonic world and you need to do a little bit of homework in that department and become a little bit more informed about really what is going on or are you in a special school? Now at the end, the very next verse, uh, Paul writes, we have this treasure, this beautiful way of responding to our lives because we've been transformed by the gospel in jars of clay. You're never going to be perfect. It's okay. These people I've told you about, Doja and Joshua and others, uh, they are not, they're very humble people and they don't walk around prancing around with holiness. They, their lives are lived in jars of clay, just like you and me. Can I pray for you as you think about this? Father, Thank you for these people, Doja, Joshua, Max. 
many others I could think of that have had such an influence in my life. Thank you for people that disturb us with their walk with you or encourage us with their walk with you. Show us today, show these people a village church of Bartlett what it is you'd like them to come before you and think about and say, God, what is it you're saying to me? And empower me with your grace to walk in obedience and trust you. We ask in Christ's name.